morning, church. Grace and peace to you all, and Happy New Year's. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the first epistle of John. The first epistle of John will be in chapter 2 this morning, and we'll be looking at particularly verses 15 to 17. The first epistle of John, chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, and the title of my sermon this morning is Two Kinds of Love. Two Kinds of Love. And once you find your places in your Bibles, loved ones, please stand with me for the public reading of Scripture, just like they did in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. 1 John 2, 15 to 17, two kinds of love. This is the word of God, church, starting here in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. John the Apostle writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of God, church. Let's go before him one more time in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for this day that we're able to gather in your name, Lord. What a grace it is. What a gift it is, Lord, to be together as the family of God, to dwell in unity, Lord Father. Not because of our similar interests regarding hobbies or, or jobs, but because of our common faith that we have in you, Jesus. That you are our Lord. That you are our Savior, Lord. And that although we live in a fallen, broken world, that God, we hang on to our hope that we have in you. That because you died was buried and you resurrected that we long for the day that although we will die because of sin that we will rise again with you in glory when you come again jesus to make all things new we long for that day we yearn for that day we wait for that day but lord we we are currently in this world nonetheless and god what a great trial and, and, and test it is lord for christians to walk through this world as pilgrims help us god to hear what you need to tell us this morning church so that god as we go before this day as we go into this new year as we go to the rest of our lives father that god we will be found faithful doing what you have called us to do in the very place where you have us right now in our in our workplaces and our families and our neighborhoods so that ultimately lord when we have have finished the race when we when this world has passed away and your eternal kingdom has come we will hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. But until that day, Lord, we have much to learn and grow in, and today is such an opportunity as this. So help us, Lord, to, to hear your words, to, to apply them to our lives. I pray for any visitors here who may doesn't know you, Lord, or, or maybe doubts your existence, that, God, they will walk away here, that they know that you are in this presence, that you are in this building amongst your people, and that, God, if anything, a gospel rock will be left in their shoe so that they could repent and come to faith in you. And I just pray for myself that as your mere vessel, as your mere messenger, I am just preaching your word to your people so that, God, your sheep are, are, are nourished, they're fed, they're sanctified, so that, God, they are just, so that they're just doing what you've called them to be, to be your witnesses to this fallen and broken world for the sake of your name. God, we love you. We lift up all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Maybe see seated, church. One common tradition each year is New Year's resolutions. We all, we all know what they are, right? Most of us, if not all, have made at least one in our lifetimes. We also know that it usually doesn't take long for people not to keep them, right? And yet, what always intrigues me about these resolutions is that people make them in light of some sort of personal reflection they made the previous year. People make them because of a goal to improve upon something they saw problematic or undesirable within themselves that same year. And yet, when I reflect upon 2023, I cannot help but think of all the problematic and undesirable evil that has come to pass this year. Do you remember the devastating earthquakes in Syria and Morocco? How about the Titan explosion? The fierce fires in Maui. I didn't even bother counting all the deadly shootings on the news this year. Did you forget the global surge of anti-Semitism? Of course, the, the Russian-Ukraine conflict and the Israel-Hamas war are still in full swing. And the rumors of war with China are not very comforting either. And an inevitable development this year was Pope Francis. Pope Francis further surrendered to the LGBTQ plus movement in blessing same-sex couples. It's only a matter of time until the Vatican raises its white flag for the sake of tolerance. 
And I even know that some of you today have personally lost loved ones in this past year, both inside and outside the church. And I am even ignorant of all the evil that the news cannot possibly cover across the globe in just one year. What's my point? There is nothing in this world you may think is worth living for that will last forever. That's not to say that there's nothing worth living for in the world, right? All I'm saying is that nothing that you live for in this world alone will last forever. But why? Because of everything that has happened in this past year alongside human history. Not only do we live in a world filled with great evil and suffering, but the world is so broken that despite humanity's great technological advances in the past hundred years, we can do nothing to fix it. And the reason I say that is because the greatest problem in the world is not just a mere physical material problem. It is far more deeper than that. It is a spiritual problem, and it's the problem of lostness. It's the reality that humanity has forgotten about its creator God. That's why all of this has happened. So my question then for you, my dear brothers and sisters, and any visitors here this morning Who will you resolve to live for this day? Will you live for this broken and fallen world or the God of the Bible who promises to restore this broken world? And what's interesting is that who you resolve to live for is contingent upon who you will ultimately love, who you will ultimately desire with all of your affections, with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Therefore, John the Apostle warns us this morning in this passage that you are to love God and not the world. You are to love God and not the world. Why? Well, he gives two simple reasons. The first reason is you cannot love God and the world. As simple as that. You can't do both. The second reason is what only one kind of love. There's only one kind of love that leads to eternal life. These are the two reasons that John gives us in this passage this morning. So let's begin by looking at the first one. That is, you cannot love God and the world. You cannot love God and the world. And so look again at your Bibles at the first part of 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. John the Apostle writes these words. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now before I explain the two reasons why you're not to love God and the world, I first need to begin with this command that at the beginning of verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. That's the primary command here in our passage. And so the main idea then is to not love the world because John is exhorting you to love God instead. And I pray that you see that by the end of our time this morning. And yet, that begs the question, why does John even give this exhortation in the first place? Well, historically, if may be brief about this, John is writing to a group of churches at the city of Ephesus, or today, modern-day Western Turkey, around the end of the first century. Why? Because you have Christians at these churches. They were experiencing, and this may may be close to home to some of us, they were experiencing an exodus. A significant number of people left the church, and as a result, they now deny the faith that they once confessed to believe, that Jesus is the Son of God who added humanity to himself so that people from all the nations may become sons and daughters of God in perfect worship. This is why John writes in 1 John 2.19 that they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. And so as a result, these faithful Christians remaining in Ephesus They were left feeling confused. They're heartbroken. They are discouraged. They are confused because they're not even sure if they themselves are even walking in the light of God's truth anymore in light of the situation. They're heartbroken over the fact that men and women who they once called brothers and sisters in Christ, they are no longer walking as followers. They are no longer walking as followers of their beloved God and Savior, Jesus the Messiah. And they are discouraged, for is it even worth persevering in the Christian faith if it contains so much conflict and suffering? It's these feelings of doubts that John lovingly encourages his little children in the faith. He encourages encourages them to keep pressing forward. 
He encourages them to keep fighting the good fight. And he reassures them as well. He reassures them that remain in God's love by faith in his word. Because if you do so, you will one day reach a final destination. You will one day reach heaven and you will see Christ face to face in glory by the grace of God alone. And it's because of that, this is why John writes in 1 John 5.13 at the end of his letter, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. That's what's going on here in this original context. And yeah, I think this is something we can all resonate with, brothers and sisters. Because let me ask you a question. This is a rhetorical one. Did not Sovereign Way Christian Church experience an exodus of people leaving the church only a matter of a few years ago? And I know it's not for the same reasons why John writes his letter this morning, but yet it's still perhaps one of the most difficult years SWCC has experienced so far as a church, nonetheless. And if I'm honest to put myself under the bus, I didn't feel the weight of it like some of you here this morning because I arrived a little bit later. I didn't arrive until 2018 when you guys were in the midst of the exodus and, this, and we as a church were still looking for a new building. And yet, based on some of the conversations I've had with many of you these past few years who experienced it firsthand, I can say that there was indeed confusion, broken hearts, and discouragement through it all. Confusion over the fact that why did some choose to leave the church and not stay? Broken hearts, that fellowship you experience with these cherished believers is not going to be the same anymore. And discouragement on how do we move forward as a church in light of this. However, the fact that we are all gathered this morning as a church in this building, bless you, for almost six years now. May, May is going to be six years that we've been here at this building. The fact that we have been here for that long, loved ones, and I would even say, and the elders could agree to this, that we're more stronger spiritually than before the church entered that time. This is a testament to that God is still using you. He is still using this church to his glory. And indeed, we have much to grow, right? We have much to grow in as it comes to continuing for the gospel and preaching it in our community. It's my prayer that we could be more intentional in doing this this next year. And yet, still right now, you and I, we are all commissioned to make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the cost of discipleship, it will rise as our culture grows more hostile towards the gospel. And yet again, we are still commissioned to walk in light of God's love by showing such Christ-like love to our neighbors as the church. Because only then will the world, only then will Hesperia, the high desert, only then will they know that the Father has sent the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we may love one another as, as Christ's followers of King Jesus. And so be encouraged by that, loved ones. Don't forget that. Because as long as you're on this earth, as long as we're on this earth together as the church, you are, in a sense, bulletproof until the Lord is done producing fruit in you. So never forget his faithfulness towards you, especially all that he is doing through this church to you. It's this kind of faithfulness that John encourages the Christians at Ephesus to remember so that they will persevere in their faith as well. But as he's doing so in his letter, right, he gives an abrupt but necessary warning. And it's this command here in 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. And yet, that begs another question. What does John mean when he says to not love the world or the things in the world? First, the word for world in Greek, it generally refers to simply the created universe itself. Just, just the universe that everything in the world and the universe, everything that God has made in creation. And what's interesting is that the Greek word, it's actually a word that we sometimes use in our English language, the cosmos, right? The cosmos, everything that the creator God has made in the universe. And furthermore, the word cosmos, it has a, a wide range of meaning. Maybe some of you know about this, and scholars debate, debate it all the time, like, what, what does John mean by the, by the word world? I don't have time to get into that debate. It's not the time or place. Yet, what I can tell you, loved ones, is that context is always key. In a sense, context is king, especially when interpreting the Bible. So according to John's style throughout his writings, he generally uses this word for world, the cosmos, in a negative sense. And what do I mean by that? He is using this word to express, quite simply, the rebellion of humanity against the world. Such, indeed, is the case of our passage this morning, 
But even when I say that, I don't want you to misunderstand me or the Apostle John here this morning. John is not saying to abstain from the material universe, its inhabitants, like humanity, or enjoying them as unto the Lord altogether. There is nothing wrong with enjoying the good gifts in creation as an expression of worship to him. Because in a real human sense, we all need the world regarding physical necessities like food, water, air, shelter, clothes, community. As one commentator says, even if man cannot live on bread alone spiritually, he cannot live without bread physically. And so it's, it's with that in mind then that it's through the world that God offers these daily necessities that teaches us as humanity to depend upon him as the creator. And such dependency leads humanity, you and I, to enjoy God, to enjoy our creator through the good gifts that he has given to us. Gifts like music, art, food, recreational hobbies, and just really the love experienced in all the various forms of relationships on this planet. And so what John is focusing on here when he says, you know, that this, this negative sense of the word world or this rebellion of humanity against God, he is focusing on the source of that. He is focusing on the source of the world's opposition to God, which could be summarized in one word, sin. So the problem then is not humanity enjoying the world as God designed it. The problem is when humanity enjoys the world more than God. When, hu when humanity enjoys the gift more than the gift giver itself. As the Apostle Paul summarizes in Romans 1.25, he says, Humanity exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature, everything in the cosmos, everything in the created order, rather than the creator who made it all. Because ever since the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden with the first humans, Adam and Eve, sin and death, they have wreaked havoc across our planet. They have wreaked havoc across the cosmos, across the universe. The world is a dark place. It's a very broken place. And not only is it under the power of the evil one, Satan and his demons, but it's corrupted with humanity's sinful desires in their hearts. And furthermore, when you look again at verse 15 where it says the things in the world, you're going to see shortly that this just refers to the threefold desires that tempts every single human heart, as we will see later in verse 16. Where the world itself refers to the fallen universe as a whole, it's these things in the world that refers to the particular part making it up all together. This leads me then to another essential idea we need to talk about in verse 15. What does John mean when he uses the word love? It's one thing to love the world, but what does it mean to love in general? And the idea of love here. It's not, it's, John is not talking about the idea of possessing a concern for the general well-being of another person. I, I mention that because John tends to use that throughout his letter, but that's not what John is getting at here. Instead, and listen to me very closely here, John is focusing, when he uses the word love, he is focusing on the pleasure a person desires to receive from the object they love. Let me repeat that. John is focusing on the pleasure a person desires to receive from the object they love. That's what John is trying to get at here regarding love in our passage. And now as I say that, however, such a desire, because he's here like, oh, John, that's kind of that's weird. I never heard it put that way before. But hear me out. Such a desire is not inherently wrong or selfish. Because at the end of the day, every human being, you and I, loved ones, we are all created with these heart desires with these longings to be satisfied. And so the question that we all have to ask yourself is, 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 is whether or not what you ultimately love in life satisfies your heart's deepest desires. And so ask yourself those questions. What is it that I ultimately love in life? The world or God or my relationship or you know the church, whatever it may be, right? What is it that you ultimately love? Keep that in the back of your mind. And once you have that in your mind, ask yourself, is this does this ultimately satisfy the deepest longings in my life? And what I can tell you is that if what you love is sinful, it can never fully satisfy. And the reason why I say that, because I know the world has all these, all these pleasures, all these desires. It's like, yes, we will come through, but it never does. It says it will, but it doesn't. The only thing that it results in is brokenness. 
It, re it results in brokenness leading unto eternal death. And the fact that people do all that they can to alleviate it because of the curse of sin proves my case. This is why John is commanding his readers here to not love the world. It's not that they're in the process of loving the world. John is giving this command, and to all of us this morning, loved ones, to warn us to not continually love the world like those who have abandoned them for the world. It's a warning for all of us to take heed. It's a warning to take heed of enjoying anything in creation more than the one humanity is originally created to worship, the creator God of the Bible. But why? Because loving the world never satisfies, for it sets its desires against God for the world. In contrast, loving God always satisfies, for it sets its desires against the world for God. And so John the Apostle, he's not ignorant here. He knows that his readers will be tempted to love the world because himself being a human being is vulnerable to love the world as well. And if you and I are honest, the same is true for us as well, regardless if you're a Christian or not. Let me give an example. And I'm going to put myself under the bus right now. I remember when I was a younger Christian, I got saved 2013. I was entering freshman year of high school. I remember going through high school as a young Christian, um, barely, going to, barely going to my youth group, that I experienced a problem. And this might sound shocking, but I'm being brutally honest right now. I remember I used to envy my unbelieving friends, my classmates, on how they used to live their lives. I'm like, man, they have so much freedom. They can party. They can be with whoever they want. They can just do whatever they want, right? Man, I am jealous. And yet, as I was thinking like that as a young Christian, I knew that was wrong. And yet, even, I, even though I know that was wrong and I desired that, I always thought at the end of the day, like, man, becoming a Christian, I have to give up experiencing pleasure, experiencing joy. I have to make these sacrifices so I can have eternal life in Christ. Um, but I can never have such joy and pleasure because only the world can have that, right? That was my thinking as, like a, as a Christian walking in the Lord for like one to two years, right? Very silly, right? But that's, but that's what I was thinking. And it, really, and it really was a struggle for me because like I always, always kept thinking about it, right? And especially being in the public school system, just those temptations are very real. And yet, I can't remember who told me this, but someone eventually led me. He's like, John, if you want to get wisdom, you got to go to the book of Proverbs. I'm like, bet. And so I did go to the book of Proverbs. And what's interesting is that I was reading it. It was like, wow, like just, just this wisdom for life. It was incredible. But then I came across two sets of Proverbs that really spoke into what I was feeling at that point in time. I share the first one. Proverbs 23, 17, 18. It says, let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. So as a young Christian reading it, I'm like, wow. Not only did that speak to what I was feeling at that point in time, but the reason why I shouldn't feel that way is because, no, fear the Lord. Fear God. Do not follow your heart as Lord. Follow with all of your heart that God is Lord. Because when you do that, you will experience true flourishing in this life. You will have a future. Your hope will be not cut off because your salvation and hope and joy and pleasure is not in this world, but ultimately in God, who I will be one day, who we will all day be reunited with him in heaven. And what's interesting is that as I read that, I kept going a little bit farther, and then I read something very interesting. If anything, a contrast to what I just read. Consider what Proverbs 24, 19-20 says. It says, fret not yourself because of evildoers, and be not envious of the wicked, for the evil man has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. In other words, I should not envy my sinful classmates despite the freedoms that they have to do whatever they want, because they might find their pleasure and joy temporarily in this world, but ultimately, as it says in the Proverbs, they have no future. Their lamp will be put out. In other words... They will die, like we all will one day, and yet they will experience eternal death and hell forever. And so as a young man, when I was reading that in high school, I was like, wow, I do not need to envy this world because I have a living hope that, 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 that does not account for all the pleasures and the joy and the glory that we will one day partake of, loved ones, when we see Christ face to face. And so I share that with you all because I know personally, as you do as well, that the desires of the world will be tempting to you. It tempts us all the day in some way, shape, or form. And even for you young people, I know there's a couple of you in here, right? Because ever since you were young, right? This is true for all of us, but especially in this generation today, it's horrible. 
The culture has been hammering into your minds through, through mediums like TikTok and like your, like your latest Disney movies. It is through these mediums that, that the culture teaches you that, hey, if you want to be most free in your life, follow your heart. Follow your heart's deepest desires, whether it be the longing for identity, for community, pleasure, joy in life. These are all things that I think the human being longs for. I just want to say that there's nothing wrong to feel a desire for these things. There's nothing wrong in desiring to have these heart longings satisfied. The problem, however, and I believe this is the big problem, is where you try to find to satisfy these things. These desires, where do you go to? Who do you go to to satisfy them? Because if you try to find them in this world, nothing will fully satisfy you at the end of the day. And there's only one or two options for you. You will either be like the fool who keeps chasing after the next best fix, whether it be the best marriage or the best job or the best vacation. You keep doing that, but you realize, man, it's just a continuous cycle of disappointment. But like a fool, you keep going until you die, and then boom, the judgment. You don't want to do that. Or you might be this other person. You might be the pessimist. Like, ah, that's stupid, right? I'm I'm way smarter than that. But with that pessimism, you stop trying altogether, and then you conclude there's no reason for living. That's what happens when you read the book of Ecclesiastes out of context, or if you read some of the existentialist literature like Albert Camus, you do not want to go to the place, the very dark, the very depressing place. And yet, fortunately, there is another way. There is another option. The British writer C.S. Lewis once says this, that if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world could satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. In other words, loved ones, you are made for heaven. Because you know why? Because Christ is there. You were made to dwell with God because God's eternal dwelling is with man. It's with his people in the recreated universe. And yes, you are meant to find pleasure. You are are made to find joy and life, but not in the things of this world, but in the things of God and God himself because because he is all these things in himself and he has them abundantly. As King David says in Psalm 6 and 11, you make known to me the path of life, Lord, in your presence, there is fullness of joy, and that your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is why, brothers and sisters, you feel or should feel the spiritual tension of being in the world, but not being of the world. Because as born-again Christians, we are at the same time, as one German theologian put it, you're at the same time justified and a sinner. You're declared right before God by faith, and yet... You still struggle with sin, and that's just the process that we're going to experience until we are fully glorified in heaven. And so as a justified Christian, as you are declared right before God by your faith in Christ alone, you are a a citizen ultimately, right? I know we're American citizens or whatever country we originate from, but ultimately for the Christian, we're pilgrims passing through this world because your citizenship is not of this world. It is of the not yet city of God. And yet, as a sinner, as we still struggle with sin, as we fight against the desires of the world, we still live in the city of man now. And so, because of that, loved ones, you must long for the day that Christ's return. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, Lord, your will be done, we yearn for the day that Christ is going to return to make all things new, to make all the wrongs right, and that all the suffering and the brokenness that we are experiencing will come to pass Because Christ wipes away every tear, and we find eternal rest in him. And so, loved ones, abide in him right now. And we're called to do so by faith, and we do so by hanging on to his precious promises in his words. And when it feels like I can't hang on, that's why we have the Spirit to help us to hang on, because it is God who is ultimately hanging on to you. Because if not, if we don't do that, loved ones, if we are not constantly keeping our eyes on heaven, upon Christ, upon the eternal glories to come, and living now in light of that, then your affections will be captured in some way, shape, or form, or another. Your affections will not be captured for God, but will be captured by the world's desires instead. And it's with these desires in mind that we now turn to the first reason why you are to love God and not the world. You cannot love God and the world. That's the first reason. So look at your Bibles at the second part of 1 John 2.15. John the Apostle writes, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
And so John is now making a simple yet important observation in this sentence. And if you look at how this sentence is structured, it's actually a conditioned statement. And what all that means, it's an if-then statement. If the first part is true, then the second part is true. That's all that John is getting at here. So if we take this verse with that in mind, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. But that leads us with another question. What is the Father's love? And, how does, and what does it mean for someone to have it? Well, first, the Father's love or the love of the Father is simply a reference to, to what John says later in his letter. He says in 1 John 4, 8, that simply, God is love. God is love. And yet, think about that with me. This isn't just referring that God has the ability of love. He has, but it's far more greater than that. It's far more richer and beautiful than that. God is love, not because he loves, but because he is the very essence of love. He is love in himself. The existence of love in the world is contingent upon the reality that God is the very source of love himself. And because of that, the greatest way you and I can ever experience love is God's love. And you want to know how he shows that love, loved ones? The trying God of the Bible demonstrates, demonstrates it not through emotional feelings, not through emotional butterflies that you have when you see an attractive guy or a good-looking girl. None of that, right? He shows it in action. And how the trying God does that is that you have God the Father. He sends God the Son by the Spirit to die on the cross to redeem sinners like you and me from our sins so that we would inherit everlasting life with him. That is how God shows his love to us, in action. And so the Christian then, who has the Father's love, experience it through this gospel truth. And that is how the Christian can love God, right? Because God first loves them through the gospel as love himself. As John writes later in 1 John 4, 15 to 16, he writes here that whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Therefore, John's point here is that if you love the world, God's love is not in you. Why? Because at the end of the day, it demonstrates that you're not a Christian. I know that sounds intense. You're like, whoa, John, chill out, man. But no, that is what the Apostle John is getting at here. And think about this with me. If you love the world more than God, you do not love God because your affections are drawn more for this whatever you love more, which in this case is the world, more than God. And if you do not love God, you have never experienced his love for you through the cross of Christ because the only way that we can love God is based on him loving us first through the gospel. And I can tell you, if you have never experienced this love, this love through the gospel, then that only means one thing. You have not been born again. You have not come to faith in Jesus by receiving a new heart by the Spirit of God and coming to faith to God as an act of grace, as a gift alone. This is the reason why you cannot love God and the world at the same time. Because these two kinds of loves, these two kinds of affections, they are contrary to one another. If you're not going to take it from me, consider what Jesus says himself from Matthew 6.24 in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And to piggyback on Jesus, James, the half-brother of Jesus, he says this in James 4.4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so... If there is anyone here who believes you can confess faith in Christ, maybe as Savior, but you deny him as the Lord of your life by living however you want, John, James, and Jesus himself says, you're not a Christian. You are not born again. And even if you try, you can't. One love by nature shows that you hate the other. 
and vice versa. Not only are they against one another, but it's actually impossible to do so. And John is going to defend this point. He grounds this point by discussing the threefold sinful desires that exist in the world. And so look at 1 John 2.16 as we move along in our passage. John writes, for all that is in the world, and he lists three things, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And so John now lists three sinful desires, and these are the things of the world that he mentions earlier in verse 15. And yet, we need to look at that word desire. That word desire, I know sometimes you're like, oh, it's, it's bad, right? You know, the desires of the flesh, or some translations might put it less, like, oh, that's a negative term. But quite actually, the word desire itself, it's actually a, a neutral term. It is a neutral moral term. And again, context is key to understand this. And what I mean by that is that this term for desire, depending on the context, could either mean good desire or bad desire, positive desire or negative desire. And we look at the context of verse 16, John is clearly using it in a negative sense. That's why, again, some English translations use, use it as desire, lust, craving, or a longing for something. So with that in mind, then, let's look at these desires briefly, one by one, and we'll reflect afterwards. Look at the first desire, the desire of the flesh. What does that mean? Simply, this just refers to the whole nature of fallen man, the whole nature of fallen man, but particularly desiring to be self-autonomous from God. It doesn't mean that we are as bad as we could be as human beings, but what it does indicate is that our entire faculty, the, the, the spiritual aspect, the, the physical, the mind, everything to our, to, down, to our, down to our smallest molecule, everything has been corrupted by sin. And that's why this phrase, you know, it refers to our whole nature, that it is all fallen. We are completely sinners, and, and, and the greatest expression of that is that we want to do our own thing, right? We, we, we want to do our own thing and not care to do what God says. And it's because of that that whatever you love or desire, whether it be of the flesh, you can take various appetites, various cravings in life, even the good gifts in creation, and you can turn them into false idols. You can turn them into little gods because you worship these things more than God. It could be anything. It could be sex. Sex is not bad if it's in God's design, but it's, it, it can be bad if, if you take it out of his design, and that's what our culture does, unfortunately. You have entertainment. It could be food, sports, comfort, drugs, happiness, peace. Anything that you, that, that, that you take and worship more than God, that is sin. And you've made an idol, idol in your heart because you desire to worship this as your God, to find your confidence and your hope in this little God rather than the God who made you in his image. So this idea of the desire of the flesh, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's not necessarily a catch-all term, but it's a good summary on our fallen condition as human beings. We're sinners, and all we can do is sin. And yet, how about the second desire? The desire of the eyes. What does that refer to? Well, this refers to sinful desires, but are activated particularly through what a person sees outside themselves, leading to covetousness, like, I want that, I'm going to get it, right? And we can do this with appearance, possessions, people. I think a big one, unfortunately, in our, in our culture is pornography because like, you're, you're captivated by what you see, and you have this desire for more. And what's interesting about this sin, that when a lot of people talk about the sin, um, is that people, when they, when they see something, and this is true for, for all of us, right? When we see something and we desire it, especially if it's sinful, what we're doing at that point is we're removing the love of beauty with the love of what is good. And what I mean by that is that we see like, oh, I want that woman, or I want that guy, or I want that new Xbox, or whatever, you know? You want that because in your eyes you find it beautiful, eye to the beholder, right? But the reason why it's bad, because it has been removed from the essence of what is good, and we know that the only being who is ultimately good and who is ultimately beautiful is God himself. And when we remove what God calls good, the, the beauty out of it, then that's what leads to us to desire it that leads to sin. It, it was a very interesting point of how our minds tends to work when, when we you know, go down the spiral of sin. And yet, if that didn't seem vile enough, there's yet another one. The last and third desire is what John calls the pride of life. And what this ultimately refers to is the person who trusts, not in God, not in his word, but in their material possessions at the expense of God. 
Really, it's a, this, this is a warning for materialism, especially in our culture, right? And a good translation that captures this well is the Net Bible. It says the arrogance, the pride that is produced by having all these material possessions. And, and as a result, you make false gods out of success, power, control, respect, education, approval. Some theologians debate if this, if, if this idea of pride was really the heart of the first sin, not only was Satan, but at the fall, because humanity wanted to be autonomous from God. We don't know. It could be a possibility. But what is interesting, however, talking about the fall, is that you, you take these threefold desires, right? The desires of the flesh, of the eyes, and the pride of life, and you put them together, and you get a good idea of like, wow, these are the things that we are tempted as human beings, and that makes a sense of why all the bad things happen in the world that does happen in the world. And yet what's interesting is that this list, there's actually correspondence to the threefold desires of Eve in the Garden of Eden. What do I mean by that? Well, after Satan tempts Eve by attacking the will, the wisdom, and the word of God, Genesis 3, 6 records that, so when the woman, Eve, saw that the tree was good for food, the desire of the flesh, and that it was a delight to the eyes, the the desire of the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, the pride of life, because Eve wanted to be God herself, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate as well. And so what's interesting about that connection is that humanity has been giving over to the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life from the beginning all the way until now. And with that in mind then, I have a question I want to ask you all, and I want you to reflect upon this privately in your own hearts. Hearing this list, right, and, and we can go so much more in detail, but we don't have the time for that, which desire does the, does the particular sin or sins that you're currently struggling with fall under? I know that's getting really personal, but this will be very helpful. Because if you, and if you have a hard time deciding, like, well, I'm not sure if it falls under this category, that category, or this category, just know that there is some overlap between them, and you might find that maybe one is included in more than one. And yet, the reason why I'm asking this question is because if you are a Christian, you, you should have the desire to kill whatever sin that is in your life, to kill it, lest it be killing you. Because when you do that, it demonstrates that you love God and not the world. Doesn't mean we're perfect. Doesn't mean that we're not going to struggle with sin, but because you love God more than the world, you're going to want to put to death the sin more and more daily by cultivating your affections to love God more all the day more. Because if you don't do that, if there is a particular sin in your life you're not willing to give up, it demonstrates that you do not love God, but you actually love the world more. Again, you cannot have it both ways. As the 19th century English preacher J.C. Ryle once says, to be at peace with the world, the flesh and the devil, is to be at enmity with God. We have no choice or option. We must either fight or be lost. But even if you decide to fight the good fight against sin, you will fail. You will fail if you depend upon your own strength alone. Why? Because we're fickle. We are finite creatures um, who are so easily pleased by anything, right? And so when it comes to our flesh being lured by the world's most attractive desires, and it doesn't help that Satan and his demons sometimes handcraft it just for us, how can we stand if we depend upon our own flesh to fight against the flesh? And how about maybe the cost of discipleship? How about when that is raised in our culture as the culture grows more aggressive in its persecution against Christians? Will you be able to stand in that day of trouble if you depend upon your own strength? I'm afraid it is, a, it is a battle already lost before it began. And yet, loved ones, there is hope. There is hope because there is only one living hope to fight the good fight against the world, against the flesh, and against the devil. And it's your only hope in life and death. It is Jesus, the Messiah. And what's absolutely amazing, loved ones, is that theologians throughout the centuries have, 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 have rightly seen a connection that this threefold desire of the lust of the flesh, the eyes, and the pride of life, there's actually another connection to when Satan himself gives the three temptations to Jesus in the wilderness. Consider what the Gospel of Luke says. Satan first tempts Jesus in Luke 4.3 with the desire of the flesh. He says, Jesus, if you're the Son of God... Command this stone to become bread, because Jesus was fasting 40 days and 40 nights. 
And yet, instead of giving in to that desire, that flesh, Jesus responds in Luke 4.4. 4, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And as Matthew says, for on every word, they shall live on the words of God. And so it's like, Satan's like, rats, Jesus got me. Uh, I'm, I'm going to give him with the desire of the eyes, right? And he says in Luke 4, 6, and if you read that passage, he's really focusing on showing Jesus what he says here. He says, to you, Jesus, I give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you, Jesus, then will worship me, it will all be yours. And he's referring to all the kings of the world, although Christ is already king of kings and lord of lords, he just had to go through the cross before he would reign, reign over heaven. And yet, how does Jesus respond? In Luke 4, 8, he says, It is written, Satan, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. It seems like, drats, dang it again, I lost. Oh, maybe the pride of life, right? L last audible. And Satan says in Luke 4, 9, And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, Jesus, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. And Jesus is like, I ain't going to give in to your tricks, Satan. He evades his attacks once again by saying in Luke 4.12, it is said, you should not put the Lord your God to the test. The beautiful connection. And what's, and what's so amazing about this is that we look at Genesis 3.6, right? And we see that Adam and Eve, they fell. We look at a passage like 1 John 2.16 and we realize we have all failed, right? All of humanity. And yet Jesus, the second Adam, when he was tempted, he remained faithful, he remained steadfast because of his love for God and not the world. And so, loved ones, you can all turn to Christ in any time of weakness because Christ and his humanity, when he was tempted, God is a man, you are able to go to him in any form when you feel weak. You know why? Because Jesus was tempted, he understands, but he was yet without sin. As the writer of Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 says, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Do not forget this, because we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so whatever you are going through, loved ones, no matter how hard this human life can be, just remember that the God-man, he experienced every single condition of the human life from birth all the way to death and resurrection. And because of that, Jesus did that without sin. You can go to him in prayer. You can cry out to his name by faith and you will know that he will sympathize with you because he's been there, truly, and he will give you such strength and everything that you need to overcome this particular trial because God is with you wherever you may go. Don't remember that, loved ones. Remember and hang on to that promise because that is what God promises to you through his, through his word here and right now. And yet, that, that indicates another question. In light of all of this, John, right, you're saying that we're called to love God and not the world and we can't do both, as a Christian, how do I cultivate God in light, how do, I, how do I cultivate a love of God, sorry, in light of the sinful desires in the world? And again, I'm going to refer to another old dead guy, a Scottish theologian named Thomas Chalmers. In one of his most famous sermons he preached on this passage I'm preaching today, I find his wisdom here extremely helpful. He says, we know of no other way to keep the love of God or sorry, to keep the love of the world out of our hearts than to keep in our hearts the love of God. And no other way by which to keep in our hearts the love of God than building ourselves up in your most holy faith. Bottom line, if you want to get, get this love of the world out of you, replace it, you got to replace it with something greater. You can't just, you know, right now, like, eh, I'm not, I'm not going to go into temptation today, I'm just going to ignore it. Because eventually, whatever you ultimately desire at the end of the day, that's what your heart's going to follow that's why he says the only way to keep the love of the world outside of your hearts, you've got to replace it with something far greater. And the only love that can ultimately satisfy that is not greater than the world, but is what we should ultimately love at the end of the day, is the love of God. And how do we cultivate that in our hearts? We're like, wow, John, that sounds amazing, but how do I do that? He says, by building yourself up in your most holy faith. And I don't know of any other passage that is greater than this than the small letter of Jude that helps us to practically put out the world and to put God in our hearts. How do we do that? Jude writes this in his letter. In Jude 3, contend for the faith. 
Fight for the gospel that was once delivered to the saints. How do we do that, though? Because I know that seems very ambiguous. Well, he says this at the end of his letter. He says, he says in Jude 20 to 21, ultimately, if you want to keep God, the love of God in your hearts and the world out, you've got to contend for the faith. But how do you do that? Keep yourself in the love of God. And you do that by doing three things. By building yourself up together as the church in the word of God. Coming today to hear the word preached. You guys are doing that right now. You're hearing the word preached and you're being built up in your faith to love the world less so that you can love God because your mind is being renewed through the word of God. That's the first way, right? Hearing, hearing sermons preached, doing Bible studies together, having that personal time with the Lord to, to grow in your knowledge of God so that your affections will be drawn towards him. That's the first way, Bible. Second, you've got to depend upon God through prayer. All the things that we do in this life, we cannot do it on our own strength. We need God. And what prayer forces us to do is to take our eyes off ourself and to stop trusting ourselves and to put our eyes on Christ and to trust in him. That's the second thing. And yet, in light of all of that, you must wait for the eternal glories when Christ returns to make all things new. That is how you loved ones could practically love the world, love God more with all of your hearts and love the world less as you live the Christian life. It is by contending for the gospel. It is by persevering in the faith. It is by keeping yourself in the love of God, by praying, Bible reading, and waiting for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. And what's the beautiful thing about that, loved ones? That is all not dependent upon your strength. It's dependent upon the fact that God is the one who keeps you at the end of the day. He, we hang on to him, or sorry, I give this illustration. It is not we who hang on to him, it is he who hangs on to us. If you're a parent, you have a little baby, it's not the little baby that's going to be hanging on to you, because if you let go, they're going to go kaplow, right? And that will not be good, right? No, it's, it's, it's the parent who hangs on to the child. It's the father who hangs on to you as his sweet, adopted sons and daughters in him. And so, loved ones, this is the first reason why you're not to love the world. This is why you're to love God, because it is impossible to do both. And not only is it impossible but this then prepares us quite nicely then for the second and final reason this morning. And so the second reason is only one kind of love leads to eternal life. Where the first reason is you cannot do both. The second reason, only one kind of love leads to eternal life. And so look at your Bibles at the last verse of our passage this morning. 1 John 2.17, John the Apostle writes, and the word, sorry, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so John gives a second reason why Christians are not to love the world, and it's that the world, along with its desires, all that we've talked about, are passing away. And yet, what does that word passing away mean? And John actually gives a very helpful hint earlier at the end of 1 John 2.8. So if you look a little earlier in this first letter, he says the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. And what's interesting is that when you look throughout the New Testament, passages like James 1.17 or earlier in 1 John, 1 John 1.5, these are passages that teach us that the true light is already shining because that true light is God. There is no darkness in him at all. There is no wickedness. There is no sin. God is light because God is good. And even when you look at other passages like John 14.9, it records that whoever has seen Jesus has seen the Father and in a sense, then, this light came into the world when Christ came into the world. And so consider what the beginning of the Gospel of John says about the Word, or Jesus, as God. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so this light that came and is now shining, want to know when that began? It began at Christ's first coming. It began in his incarnation. It began when he came here 2,000 years ago to add humanity to himself, to inaugurate the kingdom of God here on earth. And once that happened, this darkness, this present evil age, is beginning to pass away. And what's interesting is that when, is that when it says the world is passing away, along with all of its desires, its lusts and temptations, it's because at the end of the day, it's all temporary. Kind of like the rainstorms that we, that we kind of look forward to when they come to the high desert. You see, at one moment, then the winds take it away. It's like, and look, behold, we're gone, right? It sucks. And yet, this is why the Christians do not love the world. 
Because it's passing away. And the reason why it's passing away is because Christ has already inaugurated his kingdom in his first coming. And you know what? He is coming back again. He is coming back again in his second coming soon to, to, finish, to, to complete it, to consummate his kingdom by restoring this broken universe. And so, loved ones, another question. Why, why should we live for something that we can't hang on to forever? And say if any of us try to, the only thing that any of us will inherit if we try to love the world, hang on to its desires, you will find yourself fading away with it, leading to eternal damnation and hell for loving it. And I know by me saying that, that rubs people in our culture the wrong, wrong way. It's like, well, John, how can you say that? How can you say that those who love the world and its desires, oh, I get that, you can't love the world and God, but how can you say that loving the world, that by you passing away, that leads, that leads them to go to hell? You've been talking that God is love this entire time, but now you're saying that God is a God of wrath? How can these both two be true at the same time? And because of that, people in our culture, or maybe some of you here today, you think that he cannot be both. And if he is, I refuse to believe in a God like that. And yet, what you need to understand is that the Bible teaches both. God is both a God of love and justice. And not only that, but here's some questions for you to think about. What is love? What is justice? What is your standard for how you know these things at all? And think about this, just to make an illustration. Think about the person that you love the most in life, maybe like your spouse or your kids or whatever. Say if they're being harmed, wouldn't you be wrathful, right? Like, man, like, don't hurt my children or don't hurt my wife or my husband, right? You would be wrathful and angry because you love them and not despite it, right? Likewise, how much more is this true with the holy God who loves what is good and right and hates what is evil and wrong? As Psalm 145, 17 to 20 says about God, it says that the Lord is righteous in all of his ways and faithful in all his acts. The Lord is near all who call out to him, all who call out to him with integrity. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears the cries for help and saves them. The Lord guards all those who love him, but he destroys all the wicked. The Bible is clear that God is both a God of love, but also a God of justice. And when you look at the Bible closely, you see that, all right, God's wrath, it is then an outpouring of his love. And so as the standard of goodness, he must judge what is evil. And furthermore, everyone who then goes to hell goes there, right? Because, not because God was merciless or cruel or he didn't give them enough time. No, they go there because they chose to. They have rebelled against God and as a result, as it says in Romans 1.24, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. And, and one thing that I find extremely helpful regarding this point in the Bible is what C.S. Lewis again says. He says that there's only two kinds of people at the end of the day. Those who say, your will be done to God and to those whom God in the end says, your will be done. All that are in hell choose it Without that self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy ever misses it. And what, and, what that, and what he's trying to get at is that people go to hell not because God was cruel and he sent them there. No, people go to hell because they deserve it. And they deserve it, and, and in a sense, they chose to be there. They wanted to rebel against God, and God's like, all right, I'm going to give you what you want. No fellowship with me. You can live for yourself as desires, and that's what, this, 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 and that's what it means to enter that place of hell, of damnation, of punishment, because you're, you're receiving the justice of God at that point, but it's because you chose to be there because of your sinning. And so with that in mind, only the Bible explains and consistently says that God is both God of love and of God of justice. And it's only that reality, love, that it even satisfies our deep longings for all of the injustices. Everything I mentioned at the beginning of the, of the sermon, only God can make all the wrongs in the world right and him. And, and, and the reason why that's so important, right, because we look at the world. I said earlier, everything that we see in the world is because of sin. The brokenness, the pain, the suffering, all of that is because of human sin. Although God made everything originally good and the pinnacle of his creation, humanity, even good himself, yet they still sin. You saw that with Adam and Eve, right? And as a result, sin and death has come into the world. And yet, the goodness of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is that in light of that, right, God would have been completely justified in sending all of humanity to hell. And yet, God shows his love to the world instead. God shows his love to the world, as it says in John 3, 16, that for God so loved the world, right, that he sent his eternally begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish in hell, 
but have everlasting life. And so we're the reason why the world's so jacked up, loved ones. And yet, God is the answer to how he can make all the wrongs in this world right in him. And that answer is Jesus. He came, he lived a perfect life, he died on the cross so that if you believe in him by faith alone, repent of your sins and follow him, you will be saved. Because when Christ died, he, he, he's not in the grave. But three days later, he rose again from the grave. You can't say that about any of the greatest world philosophers, religious leaders, political leaders who have come and gone. They're all in the grave. Their bones are still there. But, he, but if you find Jesus' tomb in Israel, in Jerusalem, he is not there because he is risen. This is the goodness of the gospel. If there's anyone here who does not believe in him, I exhort you, repent of your sins, believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ by faith alone, and follow him because it's only when you do that you will experience true everlasting joy that can only be found in God himself. Therefore, heed the wisdom then. Heed the wisdom everyone here this morning of what John provides at the end of verse 17. He says, whoever does the will of God, you will abide forever. And yet that leads one last question. What does it mean to do the will of God? And I know there's a, 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 quite a few ways that we can answer that question. But yet when you look at 1 John, the context of 1 John... The, the two things that John is emphasizing is you got to believe in God and you got to love people because God has first loved you and you're able to receive that love by faith in him. you got to love others and you got to love God as well. As John writes in 1 John 3.23, he says, This is the commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he has commanded us. And so the one doing the will of God in this sense then is the one who obeys him out of love. And we love him out of our obedience. And it's this that leads them to abide or, or remain in God forever. And what that means is that you will remain not only in this age, this temporal broken world, but you also abide in the next age to come, into eternity, right? Because all of those who love the world will one day pass away into judgment. If you're faithful, if you're faithful in loving God and loving others, you will remain forever as an act of God's grace alone. And so all true Christians then, you and I loved ones, we will fight the good fight and remain steadfast to loving God and not the world so that one day we will enter that rest anew in him. That rest that comes in the new heavens and the new earth. You will no longer be in the presence of a final world anymore. No more brokenness. No more pain. No more saying goodbye to loved ones because all this will pass and, and, and to come will be the end. All who endure to the end will not only be saved, but one day bask in that awesome presence of beautiful glory in Christ's presence forever in heaven. And so, loved ones, in light of all this, you cannot live as if this world is your home. Do not love this world, please, because this is not our home. We are called to love God because he is what we long for. We are mere, mere pilgrims passing through this world so that one day we will arrive at home with God forever. And just to share with you again, one book I read this past year was a book called The Pilgrim's Progress. It's a very famous work in, um, in Christian history. If you can get past the Old English because it's very hard to read, it's a very important book because it captures the image of what the Christian walk is all about. We are not meant to plant our flag and, you know, um, make our home here on this earth, at least as it is now. We are called to get our backpacks. We're called to get our hiking sticks. We're called to get our maps, the word, so that we can walk as pilgrims. Passing through this world, being in the world, but not of it, and calling other people that we pass by, I have found the bread to eternal life. I have found the water that leads to eternal life, and it is not in this world it's in the name Jesus. So follow me. Repent and, and come follow me so that as we follow Christ together, you will taste of such eternal glory. That is how we are called to live the Christian life. So to, to keep our eyes at the end to come and living faithfully now in line of that living hope that we have in Jesus. And just to close with, with these encouraging words, I, I just read these words the other day for my Bible reading plan. Um, this is what Revelation says, right? In light of what we have to look forward to, as Christians, why this pilgrimage is so worth it despite all the tribulations, despite all the trials, despite all the difficulties that we will have to go through. John writes again in Revelation 21 to 5, the ending of the Bible, he says, Then I saw the new heaven and the new earth, for the first, and the, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, 
prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne he said, Behold, I am making all things new. Find comfort in that. That is a trustworthy promise of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He will return again to make all things new. And surely this is sufficient, loved ones, to strengthen you to keep fighting the good fight in this life until the next. Therefore, you are to love God and not the world. Not only is it impossible to love God in the world, but it's only God's love for you that leads to eternal life. And I know tomorrow is indeed a new year, another Monday morning. And yet, who will you resolve to live for this day? This broken, fallen world or the God of the Bible who promises to restore it? Because if you love the world, you will fade away with it alongside his desires into eternal death. And yet, if you love God, I know the cross will indeed come before the crown, but I can assure you, such light momentary afflictions prepare you for such a weight of glory afterwards in eternity. And so with that in mind, I close with a prayer of an ancient Italian monk. It's one of my favorite prayers that I've ever read so far in my life. He says, I pray, O God, that I may know you and love you, that I may rejoice in you. And if I can't do so fully in this life, may I progress gradually until it comes to fullness. Let the knowledge of you grow in me here on earth and there in heaven be made complete. Let your love grow in me here and there be made complete so that here my joy may be great in hope and there be complete in reality. Let us then live in light of our living hope in Christ by faith now, loved ones, so that we will one day behold his glory face to face as partakers in heaven forever. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this day that you've given us. We thank you, Lord, for the salvation that we have in you, Jesus, and that God, although we cannot see your glory now, that by faith we can seek it each and every single day by reading your word, by praying to you, by being with the church family to do life together, Lord, as we wait in great eager anticipation when you come to make all things new. Lord, we live in a broken world. We live in a fallen world. And all these things have happened because people have forgotten God. But the goodness of the gospel is that you have made yourself known to us. And now our call is to remember you, to remember your promises, so that, God, we do not forget to do our own thing, but, Lord, to remember you all the day more, living faithfully now in light of the age to come. We love you for the love that you've first shown us through the gospel. And we just thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And just to give... Um, we're about to partake of communion, but also we have a baptism for you guys this morning. And a lot of you guys know the young man, and so we're looking forward to, you know, partaking of this together. So we're going to do a baptism.